This is a good time on the night before Veterans Day, an occasion that unfortunately does not mean as much as it should. This is a good time to ask ourselves, when does a fighting man become a veteran? Is it only after he's handed his discharge papers and his separation pay? Is it uh, only then that a man becomes a veteran? Or does he become a veteran once he's seen action, once a gun is pointed his way and fired in anger? Is that when a man becomes a veteran? Or is it when he's reported missing in action? Here on the eve of Veterans Day is a report from NBC correspondent Andrew Pearson in South Vietnam, where we're fighting a war that has no name. On Saturday, November 9th, fans rioted at the Roosevelt Field Raceway in Long Island, battling police and setting fires. At least 15 were hurt, and the head of security died of a heart attack during the riot. Sunday, November 10th, was the evening before Veterans Day. On NBC, Frank McGee signed on for Monitor with a salute to the holiday. Andrew Pearson had correspondence from Vietnam, while President Kennedy spent much of the weekend in New York City. They were thinking a lot about going home for Christmas. The American Special Forces men had been out for five months, four more weeks to go, before being replaced by another team of 12 men to continue the supplying and training of the Vietnamese Army. Now, three of the Special Forces team are apparently prisoners of the Viet Cong. I spent a week with these men in their small camp south of the Mekong River in the flat, rice-growing country of South Vietnam. They were living in the middle of a communist-controlled area, working during the day along with other Vietnamese to train a local army to begin fighting the prevailing communist strength. And at night, defending behind trip-flared and booby-trapped barbed wire, the small square piece of real estate they were holding on to. They were over here, right? Uh, 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 told him that uh, VC, you know, got uh, uh, two ASIC and Yeah, two okay, okay, one. okay. And they moved over to here. Uh-huh. But he doesn't believe This is Lieutenant Rowe talking recently with a Vietnamese sergeant through an interpreter about the presence of regular communist soldiers a few miles away from their camp. Back over behind the church, right? In other words, these are two brand new units. Now, there's none of this remnants of stuff that got hit over here the other night. They're not parts of the units that got here. Brand new units. Brand new. I mean, 281s and 286s. Uh, 86s we don't worry about. It's the 81s. What about first coming? I'm worried about first coming. Now, we can take, uh, we can take a little bit of pounding, but what about first coming? Can we support them? As a matter of principle, they were too self-conscious to talk flippantly about democracy, but courageous enough and young enough to give themselves away. Lieutenant Rowe has a fiancé in the States who wrote him a letter recently saying that somehow their secret engagement had become known at home, and he exclaimed in mock annoyment at the time that now he was completely trapped. James Rowe didn't make it back to the small camp he was helping the Vietnamese defend, nor did Captain Humbert or Sergeant Pitzer. Sergeant Pitzer had a daily medical call in the village across the canal. He used to scold the women in a friendly way for not washing their children enough, which would have prevented a common skin disease. These three men were captured during a military operation described by an American officer in Saigon after visiting Tan Fu. This company, of course, this third company is very badly mauled. It sustains upwards of 30 wounded. Last night, we carried from that unit some 30 unaccounted for. The two officers were wounded very early in the engagement. Two American officers. Two American officers. One captain, one lieutenant. 
and the situation of the medical NCO who belongs to the normal prototype Special Forces Detachment unknown. We have to carry those three fellows right there as missing in action. One of them was a cadet of mine. Uh, at 1,800 hours last night, this is a major canal. There's an intense search on for the three lost Americans, planes, helicopters, and foot troops. But the Viet Cong are in their home territory, and the chances of the Americans being found are small. Three more American soldiers in South Vietnam missing in action. Andrew Pearson, NBC News, Saigon. Tomorrow is Veterans Day. Until nine years ago, until 1954, we called it Armistice Day, to herald the day in 1918 when the guns of the First World War were stilled. A day that brought an end to the shooting, the return of the world to peace. But we changed the name, changed it to Veterans Day, to honor all veterans of all wars, including those that came after, even the little wars that have no names. We changed the name because the name Armistice Day belonged to the men of the Argonne, to the men of Chateau Thierry, to the men of the Marne, to the men of the First World War, the war they said that was fought to end all wars, perhaps more properly, the war during which we came of age. And tonight, the eve of Veterans Day, tonight American fighting men are scattered to virtually all the corners of the earth. We have no war as such. We are engaged in no war, not at least by name. But still there is shooting, and still men in uniform die in the line of duty. They die, ironically, in struggles to keep the peace. In this year of 1963 alone, since January the 1st, 2,680 servicemen are dead, died in the line of duty, the Pentagon reports say. Many of them, the ones we hear the most about, were killed in action in South Vietnam, in the gateway to and from Red China. But there were those, too, who died in Germany, in Korea, in Thailand, in Japan, in Iceland, in Libya, in Turkey, in the Philippines, in Greenland, and in the close-to-home Caribbean. There are those among us who measure the price of freedom, the cost of the Cold War, in dollars. But there are others who measure the price in more human terms, more meaningful, more lasting terms. And it is they who will stand bareheaded at 11 o'clock tomorrow morning, Veterans Day, and observe two minutes of silence for the men who have died in the service of their country, in all the wars, even those that have no names. On this same day, black Muslim activist Malcolm X delivered what would become a widely recorded speech to the Northern Negro Leadership Conference at the King Solomon Baptist Church in Detroit. His message was one of revolution. He heavily criticized civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King Jr., who he said sold out, and added that the march on Washington was nothing but a circus with clowns and all, black and white clowns. How's the fight going? This is by way of an opening gambit now. How is the fight going? Well, you know what the fight, I'm talking about your fight of life. The fight uh, against the elements, against time, against your own increasing uh, inability to cope, against your bad knee. Is it going okay? It's going pretty good, huh? Well, it's, uh, it's only the middle of the week yet. We've got a long ways to go. Or at least we like to presume that we've got a long ways to go, unless out of the thundercloud up there, a gigantic male fist comes whistling one down, one day, boom, no Manhattan, boom, no Bronx. The day the fist squashed Bronx. The Bronx. <laughs>
Yeah, so that would make a great TV show. Let David Susskind handle that one. A lot of wonderful production effects. We get Greer Garson to play the lady living over in Staten Island who is looking very worried over to Manhattan and sees it's just a big hole in the sea where it used to be, and her husband isn't coming back from the agent. Oh, I got the whole scene, you know. And she waits eternally as each Staten Island ferry approaches, and there's nobody to take back to Manhattan. You know, oh, it's terrible, sad. Mrs. Miniver all over again. Well, how is the fight going, friends? Your own little secret protest that's going on inside of you. You know the little protest that you've got in there. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Of course, everyone knows what I'm talking about. Of course, there's no question about it, but today the protest is a way of life. I suspect in the end that there will be, I believe before the year is out, a publisher is going to bring out a guide to the protester, the uh, all-purpose guide. <laughs> it's just an idea, you know, that protesting made easy, or the armchair protester. That would be written by, say, uh, somebody who writes for Harper's, you know. They're peripatetic protester. And then there will be one called the dynamic protester. And, of course, some religious figure has to write one, too. It'll come along. Or uh, the power of positive protesting. Or peace of mind through sign writing and carrying around and yelling, fist fighting. Uh, it's, got, it's got to come. Did you see, you know, speaking of that, and, of course, everybody's getting mad, thinking that I am for the terrible things that people are protesting against. You know, I have a feeling. I may uh, interject a feeling here. I know that can be very embarrassing. That most of the things we are protesting against today, in general, are human nature itself. In other words, we're protesting against human nature. We're mad at being people. Now, most protests are leveled against other people. Very few people protest against themselves. So... If you can find the flaw in other people that has somehow bugged you a little bit in yourself, protest madly against the other guy, and no one will notice you. Now, this is an old forensic trick. It's an old trick that politicians use often. Believe me, the politician with, his, with, with the biggest fist in the till is the first politician to campaign loudly and trumpet loudly. I am going to rout the grafters out of the city hall. We're going to do away. With wasteful pork barrel spending, and when, and of course, you, you see another guy. <laughs> Be careful of that. Now, this is the problem with the protesters. Now, most protesters I've known, and I've known protesters all of my life, and have from time to time been one. Most protesters are blessed with a sense of righteousness far and above and beyond the call of ordinary righteousness duty of the ordinary citizen. Now, by, by righteousness, I mean a sense that they are intrinsically better and more superior people. Uh, <laughs> they're more sensitive. They have uh, greater morals. No question about that. And uh, they have a, a, a firmer grasp of the issues. No question about that. Although most of them don't even bother to read about the issues. They're only, they have a firm grasp of their side of the issue is really what it is. Even that may not be so very firm. It's at least very loud. And usually the protester will pride himself on being more intellectual than other people. This is one of the... I've rarely met a protester who would not pretend to be more intellectual, at least more uh, delving and probing than other people. Oh, yes, I've rarely met one that did not say that. And yet, I have rarely met a protester who was intellectual in any sense. Every protester I've ever met really is usually the... the, the uh, 
He's the opposite of intellectual. He is generally a totally passionate person. Most people today confuse passion for intellect. Uh, this is a, <laughs> there are diametric ends of the pole. Now, you can be intellectually passionate, or you can be passionately intellectual. But it's very difficult to be intellectual and passionate at the same time. They hardly ever go in the same direction. Oh, yes. The intellectual is usually really, really mad. It really causes the protester to become angry, usually. Uh, the, the, the real enemy is the intellectual, primarily because the intellectual keeps bringing logic into various issues. And they'll say, what do you mean, logic? What do you got? What can, what has anyone, who? And the next thing you know, they're throwing catchphrases like love at you. What is it? Don't you have any love for your fellow man? So, well, I'm not, it's not, it's not the discussion of love here. We're talking about the, the, the basic issue of right and wrong and logic, or where, where the logical, the illogical extension of your principle will lead us eventually to an enormous protest that could go on forever and ever, which, by the way, eventually results in the final protest. You're aware, of course, that the final protest is always war. That's the eventual protest march. The next morning, President Kennedy and his family flew to the White House. The President and John Jr. went to Arlington National Cemetery to take part in Veterans Day ceremonies. Meanwhile, the first interplanetary probe in the Soviet Union's Zon program, Cosmos 21, failed to escape Earth's orbit after a rocket misfire and a failure of proper altitude control. On November 12th, the President met with Portuguese and Uruguayan ambassadors before hosting an off-the-record meeting on Cuba that included Robert Kennedy, Dean Rusk, and Robert McNamara. He also signed off on National Security Memorandum 271, a then-secret memo to NASA Administrator James E. Webb. He told him to assume personally the initiative and central responsibility to develop specific technical proposals for broader cooperation between the U.S. and USSR in outer space, including cooperation in lunar landing programs. On Wednesday, November 13th at 11.15 p.m., Gene Shepard signed on from WOR talking about protests, intellectuals, and angry demagogues. Did you read in the Sunday Times, my, my, I, one of the things I really dig the Times about is the Times carries pieces that probably inadvertently in many cases, because, uh, and, uh, and again, maybe not, but they carry pieces that really are truly uh, significant, as opposed to the trivial little news items about this guy's making a speech about this fair rise, and this guy's making a speech about whether the theaters are going to close at 7.30, you know, the big headline stuff in most of the other showbiz papers. But little pieces... And here's a piece I'm going to read to you. It's got a byline. It's from the sport page. Now, you don't expect to find demonstrator news on the sport page, although this insanity out at Roosevelt Raceway is a good example of that kind of thinking that is rampant in the world today. If you don't like what the ruling is, kill somebody. Kill everybody. You don't change the rule. You don't worry about rules at all. You just start burning stuff. Did you see some of the descriptions of that thing out there, how the people in the stands cheered them when they were on, on their rampage burning things? Uh, even people who had no money in the race, they were just cheering the, the protest. That is another one of the assumptions that is very questionable today, and that is that a protester is right. We assume that every protester is right because he's protesting. One of the fascinating problems with protesters, of course, in general, 
is that they will use very devious kinds of arguments. Now, for example, in the recent, there's a recent issue of a, of a magazine, I believe it's Playboy, in which Lenny Bruce is quoted. And now there's a typical example of a protester, a free-form protester of our time. And Bruce is quoted as saying, well, yes, he says, I would hire uh, convicts. Jimmy Hoffa hires convicts. Yes, I, I'm, I'm for Jimmy Hoffa because he hires convicts. And I suspect that's what Christ would do, too. Well, now, you see, this sounds great, you see, because he's brought in the name of a revered religious figure. And he's paralleled it in a very interesting way, never realizing or never wanting to admit that the reason why Christ, will say, would hire a convict is a very different reason why, say, Hoffa would hire one, <laughs> one out of a spirit of forgiveness, the other out of a very interesting, different spirit. And yet this is the kind of argument that is constantly popping up in the world of the protest. Now, I would like to read to you a little piece that you might have missed, and it's a fascinating piece and shows one of the trends of our time. It's on 2S, the uh, second page of the sports section. The Sunday, November 10th issue of the Times, I read. It's datelined uh, Chicago, November 9th. The man who wrote it, and it's a well-written piece, is a man named Austin Werewine. Chicago, November 9th, special to the New York Times. University of Chicago officials viewed with Olympian detachment and some amusement today student protests against small-time revival of football on the Midway. Robert Hutchins, then-Chancellor, abolished intercollegiate football at Chicago in 1939 after a series of disastrous losing seasons. Star I'll tell you a little story about that after the piece. Starting about three years ago, however, the university has been bringing back football in the guise of physical education. It's called a football class. Yesterday, history of a sort was made when perhaps for the first time a game was delayed when students staged a 90-minute sit-down on the 50-yard stripe at Stagg Field. The action delayed the game with North Central College of suburban Naperville. Now, I'm going to tell you about North Central College. North Central College is smaller than most small high schools in this area. And a game with North Central College would be roughly the equivalent of, uh, of a game between, uh, oh, I would say the Teaneck Little League, roughly, and let's say the uh, Staten Island Little League champs. That would be roughly the kind of game that you've got going there. So don't think that they're protesting against, say, Big Ten or Ivy League football. This is a very little thing. You have to know between the lines what's going on, if you know North Central. The anti-football students carried signs, some of them in Greek, of course, saying, Ban the ball! A counter-demonstration on the sidelines saw students with signs saying, Football, see! Odd balls, no! <laughs> The game, the last of four of the football class, has played this year. They had four games, the football class. Finally continued after five students have been bundled into the paddy wagon and driven out of the stadium. They were released a block away. Earlier, a student council had passed a resolution expressing apprehension that the football class was the beginning of a revival of big-time intercollegiate football. The council opposed it. The faculty however, assured the student leaders that such a step was, in fact, absolutely impossible. Walter Haas, the university athletic director, took over the stadium's loudspeaker system to hold a discussion with the demonstrators. I must object to the absolute insolence of you using our field, he said. I hope they realize that the image of the university they're so concerned about has not been helped this afternoon, he said to the students. James Newman, the assistant dean of students, used an approach that would have warmed the heart of Dr. Hutchins. 
You have made your point, he said into the loudspeaker. I think you're getting away from the spirit of the university, all kinds of people living together. Warner Wick, the dean of students, said, and here's probably the best point of all, he said, Now you people, you fundamentalists, who are also dogmatists, why don't you let some other people play and have their fun? Now, the point here, before we go on, let's get the business out of the way here, Eddie. Go ahead, hit it there, man. Everybody, out of the rut. The 64 Buicks are here. Oh, what a the letdown. Buick special. Oh, what a letdown. fun car. The family fun car. Buick Skylark, so very personal. The new 64 Le Sabre, full size, full of action. Boy, what a tata tata. The red hot Buick Wildcat. Wild. Oh, wow. Great Scott. The luxurious Electra 225 5 Oh, wowie! And the 1964 Riviera Pure Adventure. Oh, 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 See these six great cars at your quality Buick dealer now. Oh, boy! Oh, wow! Above all, they're Buicks. Woo! Excuse me. Boy. Let's see, we have the Christmas fund here. Send your contribution this year to Box 710, Times Square Station, NY. Now, this whole thing of the of the demonstrators, a way of life today. And again, you know, you, it's funny that in our time, you have, maybe it's, it's part of the demonstration way of life, but in our day, you have to always rush forward and say that many of the causes that people are demonstrating for, the speaker is for. However, it is getting to the point now where demonstration has almost in many ways superseded discussion in many areas. Now, it is, you know, it's funny. I, I think most demonstrations start out good and wind up something else. Obviously, the, uh, the students who are playing football have to maintain exactly the same level academically as the demonstrators. In short, it is a good student demonstrating against a good student here. Now, the thing that is always assumed, of course, if you're a good student, you are unable to kick a football. That is always assumed. That's one of the great myths of our world. That You see this in the New Yorker. You see this in many magazines constantly. The belief that because a man cannot open the door of his car without getting his thumb caught, that somehow attests to his intellectuality. Thurber represented this beautifully. Thurber was always forever writing articles on how he couldn't drive a car. E.B. White writes articles that have this little slant to them, too. Even Updike occasionally uh, is tinged by that. And you wonder how a man who is so intellectual can't learn how to operate a gear shift. You know, you, you wonder how a man who, who has such great insight into things cannot back a car up. You wonder what these pure little motor facilities seem to elude these people. But nevertheless, the assumption that is always made is, of course, that the intellectual, and I don't know how to call them, uh, what, you know, the, what, what is the phrase, you know, uh, is a man who uses ideas and who is concerned with abstractions, is this an intellectual? Well, in that case, then I'm, I guess I'm one. Then here I am every night. I'm concerned with abstractions and ideas, one, yeah, however imperfect. Uh, yet I have never prided myself that I wasn't very good at throwing the third. 
You know, it's somehow that the two don't seem to have any connection. And yet, nevertheless, it is always made. The problem here, of course, is, again, it's a kind of intolerance. It's a new kind of intolerance that is marching under the banner of tolerance. It is intellectuality marching under the... It is not... It's truly anti-intellectuality marching under the banner of intellectuality. This is, this is a thing that bothers me. And so today, the man with anger is somehow considered the man who is right. Anger somehow gives a man right today. And so many an author is having trouble, you know, Ed, whether you know it or not, many an author today is having trouble that he can't, he's not angry enough. And he feels that he's missing the boat because he can't become angry. The more you know about situations, the less, well, the less possible it is to be angry, in a sense. Very difficult. And so now we've come into a day when there is a new kind of, uh, I suppose you might say, a new kind of uh, demagogue around. I don't think that the demagogues today are politicians anymore. I think a politician who tries demagoguery is, in general, in trouble today. I suspect, however, that the demagoguery is coming from the literary world. It's also coming from the protest world. And uh, since a man has anger on his side, we often will pay him obeisance. It's intriguing. I, I watched a, a big labor leader being interviewed Sunday on television. It was a sad exhibition. The poor interviewer, who was obviously a man of right thinking, he was a man of consideration, he was a man who believed in discussing issues. He was suddenly up against a man who was a bull of a man. He never discussed issues at all. He would shout the poor little interviewer down, and in addition to that, not only would he shout him down, he would always evade the issue, always evade the issue, and yelling real loudly into the camera until finally the poor little guy was defeated and he wound up looking like a fool. And what is intriguing is, of course, the fact that this man, the, the, the labor leader in question, recognized the fact, maybe subconsciously, that the man with righteous anger is always the man to whom everyone will listen. I saw the other day, for example, in one of the, one of the newspapers here in, uh, in New York, there was a discussion with somebody, and it was about the closing of a theater. There was a lot of yelling and hollering. There were back taxes, uh, $40,000 or something, and rents and so on. Big closing. And so the tax officials came, and they had obviously been given orders to close the building. So the owner of the theater screamed something at the tax officials to the effect that, well, you can't use the fact that you're just working for the government. You can't use that argument anymore. Not since Eichmann. Very interestingly, paralleling Eichmann with a man doing a job in a tiny way and it had very little to do with the burning of six million people over a long planned campaign of burning people and one thing and another. And this is what I mean by demagoguery of the other side. Two days after this broadcast on Friday, November 15th, seven days before President Kennedy's scheduled visit to Dallas, Democratic Party leader Baxton Bryant sent an angry telegram to Kennedy complaining that Democratic supporters were being shut out of the planned November 22nd luncheon. He claimed Dallas Republicans who were in control of the Dallas Citizens Council were behind it. The plea was for the president to do something or face a boycott by his most loyal supporters. A motorcade from Dallas Love Field to downtown Dallas was arranged for the Kennedys after another Bryant complaint. 
That evening, the president flew to Palm Beach, Florida. 